Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Jude as we continue our study through the book of Jude. As usual, I like to read through what we've gone through in the past few weeks, as well as the passage that we, are, we will be studying today. So Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept an eternal bond under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in the undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the Black darkness has been reserved. Lord, we ask for the grace to know your word, and not just to know your word, but to see life with a biblical worldview. Lord, we know there are many false teachers out there, and we need you to guide us with your word so that we can identify false teachers. Be with us in our study this morning. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers in the 1800s. He was known as the Prince of Preachers, and one of the reasons why he's known as that is because the way he preached God's Word is filled with power and conviction. At the peak and prime of his ministry, his congregation reached the thousands. 
on an average Sunday in the, on, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there would be thousands of people showing up on Sundays to hear God's words preach. It got so, it grew so much that even in the weekly studies, people would actually sell, not sell, but they'll give out tickets to go and attend this midweek Bible study. On average Sunday, there would be several thousand that would attend to hear him preach God's word. And, and if you were to look at him in a modern day, he would be known as a megachurch preacher. And unlike some of the modern-day megachurch preachers, he actually preached God's words faithfully. There was a reporter that wanted to see Spurgeon preach, and uh, the week that he went, Spurgeon was not there. But he reported that when the people were leaving the church, they were, they were saying how great that speaker was. There was a guest speaker, so they were just elevating the speaker. But the next week, when Spurgeon came and preached, and the reporter observed the people leaving the church, he noticed a common theme was, what they were saying was, what a great God that we have. Spurgeon had a, was a prolific preacher. He had a photographic memory. He was able to preach a whole sermon with just little scraps of words on his page. And like mine, you see mine is filled with words. Spurgeon had a photographic memory. He, re- he memorized most of Scripture. He was able to recall a lot of information, which caused him to be able to preach well. He defended doctrine and preached powerfully. And one may think that because of him that there would be another great awakening or some sort of massive revival. But in 1887, Spurgeon saw a looming threat from those who wanted to water down the Bible. There's some that he knew that started drifting away. They stopped holding to a right view of salvation and a right view of, this, of the Bible. Spurgeon was part of a group called the Baptist Union, and some of the people that were in this Baptist Union were liberals. And Spurgeon wisely understood what happens if liberals had a greater influence in the church. So he wrote an article called The Downgrade. And this article was a warning to churches that are buying into the liberals' view of Scripture and salvation. Spurgeon said that the liberals within the Baptist Union will slowly draw people away from Christ. These liberals will draw people away from biblical truth, and the high view that they had of Scripture will eventually become downgraded. It will be downgraded to not just, just God's Word not being just the sole authority, but just one of many books. Spurgeon, for years, fought for the supremacy of Scripture. Spurgeon reasoned and argued from the Scriptures why God's Word is authoritative. He tried to warn But sadly, the churches then succumbed and resulted in a downgrade. Churches after churches, congregation after congregation, slowly drifted away from theological truth. And Spurgeon was crushed by it. The downgrade hurt Spurgeon greatly. Some of his biographers said that this the the downgrade controversy was what led Spurgeon's health to decline. He started developing gout. He started developing depression. And Ian Murray has said that the reason why Spurgeon died was because of the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon died at 57 years old. He died watching the church that slowly drift away to theological liberalism. He died watching people being led astray. He died watching people turning from God. 
If you go to the Metropolitan Temple today, it's only a shell of its old self. There's about 200 people there, and they are now run by charismatics. This illustrates that even a church that at one point held to solid teaching can be led astray. A church can have the right preacher and hold to the right doctrines for a season, but if we are not careful, we too can be swayed into false teaching. If false teachers and teaching are given an inch, they will take all the miles it needs to drive the gospel into the ground. And we must be vigilant against these false teachers. We must be vigilant against error because no church is immune from false teachers. Jude, in this passage, is reminding the church to safeguard the truth by identifying false teachers. He's going to show us what they look like so that we will not be led astray. Jude wants to warn us by showing us the markers of a false teacher. These false teachers are carnal, they're rebellious, and they're self-centered. And if we are not careful, we can be led to believe them and be led to destruction. They will cater to your flesh. They'll cause you to rebel against authority, and they will make you self-centered. So this, for the outline this morning, we're going to look at three attributes of a false teacher. We can identify false teachers in these three ways. The fleshly carnality of false teachers, the rebellious gall of false teachers, and the self-centeredness of false teachers. First point this morning, the fleshly carnality of false teachers. Verse 8, yet in the same way, These men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Those are this first phrase, yet in the same way. Jude is giving another example of the carnality of these false teachers. Another illustration. He's speaking again about these false teachers. He's warning the church of what these false teachers are trying to do. These false teachers have crept in, and this is going to be an indication of what they look like. And notice that Jude writes, also by dreaming, these false teachers will come into the church and claim they have a divine revelation, a new revelation. Oftentimes, will come in the form of a dream. These false teachers came into the church and claimed that they received new revelation from God through a dream. And oftentimes, when that happens, is they claim authority. They're the ones who say, oh, I have this dream from God. I'm special, and you now, you now need to listen to me. Now, the Bible does talk about how God used dreams in both in the Old and the New Testament. But how does one know? How does one know that a a prophet is actually getting revelation from the Lord? Both in the Old and New Testament, they both talk about people having dreams, seeing what God wants them to do and how God wants to lead his people. How does one know? In the Old Testament, there are tests. In Deuteronomy 13, God told Moses that if there are anyone that claims to be a dreamer of dreams or a prophet and they try to sway you away from his word or try to sway you from another God, turn from them, reject them. It got to the point where they said that if these prophets are lying, you need to kill them. So how does one know if these dreams are accurate? Well, they never contradict God's word. These dreams, if they are true, they will never contradict God's words. There are many dreamers back then and who try to sway God's people from truth, and there are even many dreamers today that attempt to, make, to do the same. 
They try to say, I have a new revelation, a new dream from God, and, they, and you have to listen to me. And in both cases, in both testaments, we must always put those to the test. And how do we put it to the test? We look to Scripture. Because God's word is always supreme. God's word will never contradict itself. And God's word will always come to pass. These dreamers, they will, they will contradict God's word and all of their dreams will never come to pass. It will never be true. There has been many cults today that exist because these false teachers claim that they have a dream from the Lord. In the cult class that Dale and I taught, more than half of them came into existence because they claimed that they have a dream from God. And if you or someone you know thinks that God gives dreams that are contradict Scripture, you understand that those dreams are false. Jude warns them to be cautious of these dreamers. Notice that they defile the flesh. This is sexual perversion. Any type of sexual act that goes against God's standard is sin. God calls people to be holy and pure. And if you're single, what that looks like in your life is that you abstain from sin and you are content in Christ. If you're married, the only person that you can have sexual relations with is your spouse. Anything outside of those boundaries are unholy. They're not pure. And oftentimes, these false teachers in their heart of hearts only promote defiling the flesh to cover up sin in their own life, to cover up their own sexual sin. These false teachers then and now will try to justify sin in your life so they can justify sin in their own lives. We don't define holiness. God does. And the fleshly and carnal false teachers will deny authority. Notice that they, that Jude writes, reject authority. They're constantly instructing people to deny authority, to turn against government, to turn against authority that's in the home, to turn against the people that you have at work, to turn against people that are in school. Any type of authority that false teachers will try to sway people to deny them. Romans 13 tells us that all authority is from God and it's from God alone. And when people reject authority, it's often about not wanting to be held accountable. That's why rebellion is so luring to the modern-day youth. Because it, it's a searing of their conscience. They don't want to be held accountable. So that they can cater to the flesh without being held accountable to it. Authority is given to us by God to establish order. And the reason is because our God is a God of order. These false teachers not only promoted rebellion against earthly authority, but they also promoted rebellion against God's word. Notice it said, revile, against, revile angelic majesties. This is the, an Old Testament reference on how God would use angels to give Israelites his word. Hebrews 2.2, 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Judas arguing from the lesser to the greater. If these people, these false teachers, they're going to try to make you rebel against the smaller things, eventually they'll make you rebel against the greater things. When you rebel against human government, eventually you will rebel against God's authority. These false teachers revile, reject, slander, and they defame God's word, law, and standard. God used angels to bring his word down, and these false teachers reject it. They slander it. They make fun of it. These false teachers insult God's word. 
Now, I know most of you in this church will not be swayed if I came up to you in this pulpit right now and said, I had a dream from God that everyone at SFBC needs to wear red. You're not actually going to believe that. In fact, the elders will come and tackle me down, and then they'll say, we have to do another candidating search. We've got to find another <laughs> pastor now. And there's a reason. I trust that most of you are discerning enough to know if a false teacher claims to have a dream, that you will know that it's not true, because those dreams are oftentimes against Scripture. But I think in our modern Christian culture, in our modern churches, I think the phrase is not, oh, I have a dream, that God gave me a dream, but rather, I feel this is what, what God wants. I feel this is what God wants me to do. I have heard it, this phrase used many times for people to justify their own sin. I feel like I must marry this non-Christian. I feel like cheating on my spouse. I feel like God wants me to, to not listen to my parents. And when you ask them, how do you know this is what God wants you to do? Oftentimes, it's about happiness. They think that happiness justifies disobedience to God. True happiness does not come in sin. Happiness is only found in holiness. And true happiness is found in submitting to God's word. Know what God's word has to say and submit to it. God knows what's best for you and I. And he, he gave us his word because that's what's best for us. Jude illustrates rebellion against God's word through a well-known non-biblical text. Look at verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This whole scene is common knowledge to them, but it's mysterious to us. This passage here is actually citing from an extra-biblical source. It's from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was, was these writings that were in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And at the time, the Jews started having these oral traditions. They started making up these uh, ideas that were passed down from previous generations. They wanted to log it down, but they knew that the Apocrypha is not inspired. Even the New Testament, when they were like, which one of these books are canon? Which one of these books are authoritative? Which one of these are from God? They took the Old Testament and they left out the Apocrypha. But the Apocrypha is helpful in terms of teaching a certain lesson. It just illustrates something. When Roger and I were, were talking about this text, I asked him for an example. Like, what, what kind of a common knowledge thing that, that Americans know about that is not true? And he said, oh, like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. I looked at him, and I was like, yeah, 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 like that. But I actually didn't even know that that was not real. Like, <laughs> I was, like, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll go with that one. And then I researched what, what, the, what the story was. You, you, some, you, some of you laugh because you know the story. You know, George Washington has got a hatchet, and at one point he cut down one of his dad's cherry trees. And when his dad confronted him, he asked, did you cut down my cherry tree? And then George Washington looked up and said, yes, father, yes, I did. And then George Washington's dad hugged him and said, honesty is better than a thousand cherry trees. And I found out that wasn't real. <laughs> this was made by one of George Washington's biographers. He, 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 he made the story up to highlight Washington's virtue and his upbringing, and, and that's how he became a, a general and a, and a great president. That's a common story at the time so that they can illustrate integrity. Although it wasn't real, it is to illustrate a point. Now, was George Washington real? Yes. Was his dad real? Yes. Were there hatches? Yes. Were there cherry trees? Yes. Did it happen? No, it did not. Is it helpful? Yes. And this is the same thing here in verse 9. 
what Judah's saying here is, we know Satan is real. Is, is Michael the archangel real? Yes. Is Moses real? Yes. Did Moses die? Yes. Did it happen? No. But is it helpful? Yes. It is helpful because it illustrates the work of the devil and his schemes. This narrative here is from the apocryphal book titled The Assumption of Moses. I actually like that title because it's, it's like assuming what happened to Moses. It shows the scheme of the devil and, then the, and, and a rebuke from Michael, the archangel. Now, Deuteronomy 34 tells us that Moses did die. You know, he failed. He struck the rock when he wasn't supposed to. And, and God told him, okay, you take a walk with me. You're not going to go to the promised land. And Moses went. He died. And no one knew where he was buried. And the assumption of Moses tried to add an oral tradition that was passed down. The oral tradition goes that, that Michael and the archangel were fighting over the body because the devil did not believe that Moses deserved a proper burial. Remember, back then in the Old Testament, burial was a big deal to them. They, knew, they, they wanted to make sure that the bones of certain patriarchs get buried in the land of Israel. And, these, and the devil here was saying that Moses doesn't deserve this. Moses doesn't deserve this type of burial. And it seems to indicate also that the devil wanted to use, use Moses' body as an idol to sway the Israelites into sin. But the point is that the devil believed that Moses' failure should not allow him to receive this type of treatment. But that's not God's standard. This word disputed here is a legal term. Satan tried to accuse Moses as someone that doesn't belong in paradise. He, he's trying to accuse Moses as someone that doesn't deserve this type of rest. And Michael corrected the devil. He, he corrected his accusation by saying that God rebukes him. The devil does not have the final say on what happens to someone. Only God does. Jude used the story to accuse, to, to assure the readers that the, the final resting place for all believers and non-believers rests in the hand of God and not the devil. When the phrase only God judgment is true, only God can judge and decide what happened to a believer and a non-believer. And these false teachers and the devil have this one thing in common, in that they try to define salvation on their own terms. This is why Jude used this extra-biblical reference in relative to the false teachers. Because they have this similarity in that they want to decide the final resting place of people. Now, these false teachers try to add to salvation. They try to say that in order for you to achieve salvation, in order for you to achieve a, a, a higher plane of spirituality, you must commit sexual sin. You must have sex with one another. That's how these false teachers behaved. That's why in this whole book, they, it mentions about how they, they, they deny God's grace and they turn it into licentiousness. Again, this is not new. It happens in our modern-day cults, and it happened even back then. In the Old Testament, there was a, a pagan god known as Asheroth, and there was these sexual statues that they would use. And they would say, if you commit these type of acts, you'll have a closer relationship with God. They tried to define salvation in their own terms. But the Lord will judge his creation on his terms, based on his holiness, by his means, on how people view his son. Your assurance of salvation is not based on your success or failures. It's based on the life of Christ. He has been crushed for our failures. And we need to look to his perfect success, his perfect 
sacrifice and his perfect life. When you come to Christ, you're given the righteousness of Christ. He's given you his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how big or small that's committed, Christ forgives all. Not only did he forgive you of your salvation, but he advocates for us. He's known as an advocate against the greatest accuser, against the devil. The devil will always try to say that we're unworthy, but Christ will say, I I paid it for them. He's worthy because of me. Our Savior loves us. It will continue to demonstrate his love towards us by assuring us of our salvation. What a great Savior we have. What a great God that we worship. Don't fall into the lies of these false teachers to tell you that what you need to do to achieve salvation. False teachers focus on the flesh, and that even includes your own salvation. Not only can we identify false teachers by their fleshly carnality, but also by their rebellious gall. The second indicator of a false teacher is that they are rebellious. Our second point, the rebellious gall of false teachers. Notice verse 10. But these men revile the things they do not understand. These false teachers are bold, and that's not a good thing. They don't fear God, and it's demonstrated by the fact that they reject and they revile the things of God. Do you demonstrate how bold these false teachers are because they don't care for the things of God? They revile, which is the same word that's used before. They slander, they defame, or they simply disrespect the things that are meant to be revered. These false teachers revile what they did not understand. Now, what did they not understand? They did not understand who God really is. They wanted to, they wanted to revere God of their own making. They did not understand or care about truth from the true God himself. They reviled the things that are holy. They deny the things that are sacred. They pervert the things that are pure. Jude then describes these false teachers in their boldness to revile against God. They act like animals, meaning that these false teachers are illogical. They act on emotion. They act on their impulse. They act on their own desires. They act like there are no restraints in their lives. These false teachers are like animals because they go after their own lust. They only care about their own lust. They're like unreasoning animals. They're bold and courageous, but at the same time, they're completely in the wrong and dangerous. Second Peter 2.12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. These false teachers are not even aware of their, no, of their own ignorance and irrationality. I was an English major in college, so I have to read a whole bunch of books that I don't even remember. But I remember one of these books. It's a philosophy book. It's a whole tome of different philosophies. And one of them was on postmodernism. And it's what's weird when you're reading this is that, you know, you're, do you guys want, know what postmodernism is? postmodernism is, this idea that what, what's true for me is right for me, and what's true for you is right for you. And even if our truths are, are opposites, it's whatever makes you happy, that's good for you, and whatever makes me happy is good for me. But in this article, it explains that postmodernism is a self-contradictory truth. It's saying that there is absolutely no truth. It's your own interpretation of truth. But yet, if that is the case, then that means that what they're saying is also not true. It can't be true. He admits that in his own writing. 
And, you, and we understand that our, our, we live in a postmodern world. You know, they think that every, whatever is truth for you, is that's all great. But that doesn't work in real life. That doesn't work in the practical world. If you look at a stop sign, you can't say, oh, that just means stop to you. But it, to me, it means go. You, it might last for a little while. You might be able to run that stop sign. But eventually, you'll get hit by a car or you'll hit someone else. Reality sets in. Or if you're working, if you have a job and you work for X amount of hours and your boss gives you a paycheck and you look at the paycheck and say, hey, this is only a dollar. I worked for X amount of, I worked for X amount of hours. I deserve this type of pay. The boss isn't going to be like, oh, well, that's your interpretation of, of what the check is saying. You think it says a dollar, but in my mind it says a million dollars. That doesn't work. It's illogical. But this is the worldview that our world holds on to, especially in our Western world. And yet Jude talks about them the way he talks about these false teachers that he's talking about, that they are headed to destruction, that they will be destroyed. Notice that Jude writes that by these things they are destroyed. What are the these things? Is, is they're, they're acting irrationally, responding on their impulse, and unreasonable like animals. Ultimately, ultimately, it's a lack of reverence and willing to submit to God's word that leads them to their destruction. What about yourself? Do you revere God's word in your own personal walk? Not revering not revering God and how you want to revere God, but fully submitting to God. Do you reason from Scripture on the decisions you make in life? Or do you act on your own instinct? Do you then move to the judgment of these false teachers? Notice in verse 11, woe to them. That's a warning. It's warning to those that are false teachers and those who are following false teachers that if you follow them, judgment is imminent. And notice that he describes them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Cain is the, is the brother of Abel. He's the first murderer. But not only that, but he decided to worship God on his own terms. Remember with Cain and Abel. The reason why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain was rejected, because Abel actually brought the sacrifice that God wanted, and, not, and Cain did not do that. He worshiped God according to how he wanted to worship God. And that caused him to become embittered, and he killed Abel. Jude uses this example to show, to show that false teachers are like Cain, and that they too, like Cain, worship God on their own terms. It is bold that they are willing to go before the true God and demand God to be worshipped a, a certain way. The creature is telling the creator how the creator should be worshipped. That's what these false teachers are doing. In reality, what these false teachers want is to, is to have the God of the universe to worship them, to have the God of creation worship man. What about yourself? Do you only worship God on your own terms? In Romans 12, it teaches that our whole life should be a, a living sacrifice, something that's holy and acceptable to the Lord. In order for us to be an acceptable sacrifice, in order for us to be a, a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord, we must follow God's word. You cannot say you're truly worshiping God with your entire life if you're harvesting habitual sin in your life. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a living sacrifice, you live your life according to Scripture. You don't live your life according to your emotions. You don't, go, you don't follow based on what your flesh tells you, but you submit only to everything that God has revealed. 
mortify sin and live in such a way that your whole life is a, is a living sacrifice that's pleasing to him. Notice that, in, in, notice that Jude continues to describe these false teachers. And for pay, they rush headlong into the error of Balaam. These false teachers are men that not only exploited people for money, but they also led people into sin. In Numbers 22, 25, that's the, the, the story of Balaam. Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites. And you remember what happened? God told Balaam uh, the, word, the blessing. He just kept blessing Israel, even though Balak hired him to curse him. And although Balaam was in, unable to curse Israel, Balaam was, quote-unquote, redeemed, in a sense, in the eyes of Balak by giving him a suggestion. He told him, you know, you should just try to tempt him into tempt the Israelites into sin. Tell them to commit adultery. Give them an obstacle for them to turn away. And, in, and Israel ended up worshiping other gods. They started committing sexual sin. And their heart was turned away from the Lord. And this angered God. Balaam is the example that Jude used to describe false teachers that attempt to lead God's people into sin. These false teachers, like Balaam, love money, but they also love to cause other Christians to fall into sin. Notice that this word error, it means literally, it means wandering from the path. It is to cause people to stray from God's word. It is to make a sheep lost. These false teachers fall and will drag other Christians along with them if they can. If there is anyone or anything that causes you to stray from faithfulness to God, cut those out. If there's anything in your life that causes you to stray from holiness, get rid of it. If there are places in your life that cause you to stumble from the narrow path, run from it. Cast sin out of your life. Jude continues, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These false teachers are rebellious, and these false teachers reject God's authority and those that God has placed in authority. In the Old Testament, Korah sought to rebel against Moses and Aaron. Remember that story? He tried to make, cause a group of people, he, he had a whole group of people to rebel against Moses and Aaron. And Korah was actually part of the Levitical priest line, but he wasn't chosen to be priests. And these people with Korah became embittered over time, and they themselves wanted to lead Israel back into Egypt. Korah continued to grumble, gripe, and groan against God and God's chosen leaders. Korah tried to sway the Israelites by asserting and implying that the promised land isn't even real. He's trying to make them believe that, the, the, that God took us out into the wilderness just to die, insinuating that there is no such thing as a promised land. They openly rebelled against God by rebelling against the elect leaders of God. These men that rebelled, Korah and all of his followers, rebelled and they were killed by God. You remember that the, the, the ground opened up and swallowed up all of Korah and his followers. Yet you would think the leftover Israelites, the Israelites that saw what just happened, they saw Korah and his father rebelled against God, and then the, the floor opening up and swallowing up, you would think that they saw that they would repent and believe. But no. The very next day, more Israelites came and complained against God, and God destroyed 14,700 of them with the plague. Korah was a false teacher, and his influence led many to the grave. 
Jude uses this imagery to show that these false teachers will do the same. They're of the same kind. They're of the same lineage. These false teachers will cause others to rebel against God and those leaders that God has placed in the church. This is like the apostles, right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul had to defend his apostleship, not because he cared about his own feelings, because he understood that if they rebelled against the apostles, if they dethroned him, they'll ultimately re- dethrone God. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns them to repent. Judas doing the same thing. He's warning them to not turn from the authority that they know is sent by God, the apostles. All rebellion is a rebellion against God. And the culture believes that it is, one, it is God's given, God-given right to rebel against him or to rebel against all authority. Rebellion is not a God-given right. We're called to trust the Lord and submit to him. And we can glorify God in our submission to whatever type of authority, whether good or evil. It takes a lot of gall to rebel against God. It takes a lot of boldness to rebel against God. Those type of rebellion is not something to be praised because all forms of rebellion is rebellion against him. Whether it's God's word or the elders of the church or your leaders or morally. When you rebel against God, you're essentially warring with God. And when you war with God, you cannot win. When someone has the audacity, the gall, and the boldness to rebel against God, know that their end is destruction. Not only do false teachers can be identified by their fleshly carnality or their rebellious gall, but also by their self-centeredness. Our last point, the self-centeredness of false teachers, verse 12 to 13. These are the men who are hidden reeves in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. These false teachers are described as hidden reeves. This imagery is it's supposed to be about like a boat that wants to park in a port. But instead of getting there, there's these hidden reeves under the water that cuts the side of the boat and causes it to sink. They're, they're hidden. They're unable to be seen. But when you touch them, when you engage in them, you will sink. That's the idea here that they're unable to see them. But when they see them and they're attacked by them, it damages them and it's too late. This is supposed to show the destructive nature of these false teachers. The false teachers were hidden in their love feast. What is a love feast? A love feast is essentially communion. These false teachers pretended to be communing with the other Christians. They They claim that we have something in common. That is, they claim to have Christ. But back then, you understand, back then's communion is not like our communion. In our communion, we have the little crackers and the little drinks that we pass around. Back then's communion was an actual meal. Like, it was a full-on meal. There would be appetizers, entrees, and desserts. It was like that. And at some point in their, in their meal, together, they would break bread and drink wine. And they'll, they'll thank the Lord and remember the Lord for what he has done. The false teachers only came for the food and even pretended to care about God. It's considered a love feast because back then, Christians were really poor. So they all had to work together to get all the food together and gather together so that everyone can eat together. But these false teachers would just come in just and just eat the food. Notice that these false teachers are known as caring for themselves. This word caring is often used in a positive sense to describe a shepherd who shepherds his sheep tenderly. His idea of this picture of a shepherd that's guiding, protecting, bringing them to water, still water, 
giving them green grass to eat. That's the idea of caring here. But Jude used this description on the false teachers because it shows that these false teachers only care about their own needs. They only care about protecting themselves. They only made sure that their needs are taken care of. These men have no regard for others. All they care about is themselves. 1 Corinthians 11 describes how, you know, how Paul said, like, don't do communion in an unworthy way. That's the idea that back then when they had all the meals, some people will go into the communion, eat all the food, and while other people are coming, and then when they get there, they realize there's no food left. That's considered unworthy because it focuses on the self. It doesn't focus on the Lord or focuses on other people. It's a lack of love for others. Because these false teachers will always make sure that their own needs are taken care of. Notice that these are described as clouds without water, carried along by the winds. This is an Old Testament reference. It's the idea of Baal. Baal was known as the god of fertility, a god of rain or thunder. And the imagery is that when, when the Old Testament people saw a cloud, they think, oh, that's from Baal. Baal the cloud's going to come, it's going to bring water, and it's going to f- give water to all of our crops. But he's saying that these false teachers are like the Baal worshippers. The Baal worshippers assume that these clouds are coming to feed them, but in reality, it doesn't deliver. It doesn't, give the, it doesn't fulfill the promises that it makes. And the more, even more so, it's carried along by the wind. So they would see this cloud coming, and the wind will blow it away. And they'll think, oh, well, maybe another cloud. Maybe another time. Maybe we need, more, maybe we need to cut ourselves some more so that Baal can provide a cloud for us so, it can, so we ultimately get rain. These false teachers always offer something that they can never deliver. All false teachers are like that. If you just YouTube these prosperity preachers, they're like that. They always tell people to uh, give them money, to, to go to them, but then they never, and that God will bless you if you give them money. But yet at the end, they offer nothing in return. Many people have been deceived by them. Notice that Jude continues to write, these are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead. They're uprooted. These false teachers promise to deliver spiritual growth, but fails. This idea that if you do this, and God will enable you to have a higher level of spirituality, and then you'll be blessed by God. It's focused on scheming people instead of actually helping people. These false teachers are useless. And Jude reminds us that these false teachers will be uprooted and be thrown and casted into the fire. Why do false teachers do this? Why do false teachers make all these promises? Well, because they know that if they can make you buy into their system, that you'll pay money for it. They're ultimately taking care of themselves. All false teachers are self-seeking. They have nothing to offer you. They promise salvation, but, they end, but you end up being disappointed. They promise blessing, but you'll end up being disappointed. Every false religion and false system is like that. They promise something that they cannot deliver. Notice that you can see right. They're described as wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Being in the Bay Area, you understand what that looks like. If you just go to any of the beaches or just drive by the bridge, you'll see waves crashing onto the shore and then foam comes up. Jude uses this imagery to describe all the corrupted things are from the water that goes into shore. The waves are uncontrollable and always bring up trash to the shores and sometimes dead animals as well. Jude uses this to show that the false teachers are uncontrollable and, only, and, only, and will only bring waste to shore. 
you call them wandering stars. You know, like wandering stars, stars don't wander. You know, I think sometimes it's like the shooting star maybe. They're like brilliant and beautiful for just a second, and then they fade away into darkness. They're short-lived in their beauty. And just like how, these, how quick these false teachers come, they'll be quickly disappearing into darkness as well. Not only do, are these stars just like beautiful for a second disappear, but, but back then they would actually use the stars to guide them. They didn't have compasses, so they will look at a star and say, okay, that's the north star. That means that direction is north. And the idea is that if, if these stars move, they become unreliable. They, they change the direction. They're, they cannot lead you to the place that you want to go. That's what these false teachers are. They can never lead you to the place that you actually want to head to. The only place that they will take you to is darkness. It goes to the end of verse 13. For whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. These people will be placed into outer darkness. If you follow them, you'll be, you too will be, lead, will be led into darkness. And that's damnation. That's eternal punishment. For those who are false teachers and their followers, this is their end. All followers exemplify what their leaders do and say. And any of these false teachers, if anyone are under these type of teaching, they will be shown in the way that they live. All false teachers are reserved for darkness. And if we as a church want to be used by God mightily and not be turned into false doctrine, we must be able to identify false teachers. Because ultimately, if we cave in and we're deceived into these, we too will be led into darkness. These are markers for us. These, these markers of carnality, of rebellion, of self-seeking, these are all markers for us today so that we know how to confront them. Because if we don't confront these false teachers, we will become like them. We need to contend for the faith when we see these type of false teachers in our midst. Friends and family, I can encourage you to contend for the faith. When you see these false teachers, be bold, be courageous, have conviction, stand up for truth. Because in the end, all the lies in the world, they will, be, they will perish into darkness. I started this sermon with talking about Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to end in a positive, positive note, talking about Al Mohler. Albert Moeller, in 1993, became the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And when he became the president, it was a time where liberal, it was like the whole seminary was liberal. It was all bad. They denied scripture, they called themselves Christians, but they don't teach the Bible. And somehow, by God's sovereign plan, Al Mohler became the president. And one by one, he was firing all the staff that did not believe the authority of scripture. One by one, he fired all the professors that did not believe that Salvation is through Christ alone. And now, if you look at it today, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is one of the most conservative seminaries in the world. And they're producing faithful men that are willing to defend and contend for the faith. If we want to be a church that can help shape the culture towards Christ-likeness, we must be a church that's willing to contend and identify false teachers and call them out. We must be a church that's willing to contend and point out error. Next week, we're going to look at a, a person named Enoch. He's going to give us a template of what it's like to defend for the faith when, when we're in a generation that's re rejecting God. We'll get an example of a faithful evangelist 
in Enoch. Let's pray. Countering false teachers that are carnal, bold, and self-seeking. Give us wisdom on how to talk with them. Give us grace and love as we confront false teachers, knowing that we were at one point headed for destruction, but by your grace, you've delivered us out of it. I pray that we have the same love for even for those who reject you. Allow us to correct error. Give us a sermon to see what these errors are and make us disciplined in our Bible studies and our Bible reading so that we can know you more. Give us boldness, Lord. May we be courageous in faithfully handling your word against those who do not handle your word faithfully. Thank you, Lord, for your son in redeeming us. And may we cherish you and your name because you are worthy of all praise. In your son's name I pray, amen.